Welcome to Bad GM's Campaign Build-Along. I'm the Bad GM, Wayne Davis, and I'll be your guide as we build an entire campaign for your group, from creating a starting city, to character creation, to building the scenarios that comprise a campaign. As you know, we've been building for the Deadlands Classic System, and we'll continue to build our campaign today. So when we last met, our characters were getting up the morning after bringing in their quarry. However, before they could do anything else, they began to hear murmuring about something happening at the jail. Heading there, they ultimately discover that overnight, the jail had been breached, the prisoners escaped, and the chief of police's personal safe was robbed. Also, two officers had been killed during this operation. Through much searching, it was discovered that the prisoners escaped through a tunnel under the jail that wound about 400 yards south of the jail, south of town. So the group realizes it's time to go southeast to chase the prisoners. Chasing their quarry through Texas, the group is met by a group of Mexican soldiers come north to get food, money, and arms. After a confrontation, the group realized they couldn't catch the escapees before they reached their likely destination of New Orleans, so they headed back to Triumph. When they got there, they found the jail under siege from five or six armed men. Getting there basically in the nick of time, they were able to defeat the ambushers and rescue the marshal and mayor from their entrapment in the jail. That's where we left off last week, and it's where we will pick up this week. We're picking up at the end of a battle, with the doctor checking on any heroes that need medical attention. Marshal Jim isn't really in a talking mood right now because they'd been under siege for the better part of an hour before the group showed up. He suggests that the group get a good meal, a bath, and a night's rest, and he wants to meet up with them in the morning to discuss everything that's gone down. That means they've got the remainder of the afternoon slash evening to themselves, and you should feel free to allow them to do whatever they feel like doing. Also, toss them a white chip at this point for their heroism. If you want to increase that to one of the other colors, depending, you go right ahead. Before you proceed, you need to take into account whether or not any of your group has been seriously injured over the past couple of confrontations. Anyone injured in Texas should be getting closer to healed, while anyone injured in last night's fight will need some time on the shelf if it was serious. That's going to drive some of the discussions about what happens in a few minutes. You'll understand what I mean just a little better when we get to this. So with that thought, let's fast forward to the next morning. Once the group completes their morning rituals, in theory, they should be wanting to catch up with the marshal and discuss what went down last night. Plus, they want to bring him up to speed on what happened in Santa Fe. By the time they get there, it's obvious that Marshal Ed is anticipating a war coming. He's boarded over the broken jail windows, and he's hammered boards all over the holes in the front. More than that, he's dressed for war. He's got his long black duster on, and the group sees two pistols holstered. He also has a rifle and a shotgun and slings on his back, crossed in an X. Additionally, they see multiple rifles lined across the front wall of the jail, and it's obvious he's been loading them. However, he'll pause to meet with the group and discuss the events of Santa Fe and of last night. Though your group can do things in whatever order you and your group want to do them in, we're going to start with the rundown of Santa Fe. It's up to the group to decide how much they want to tell the marshal, but considering that, in theory, they didn't do anything wrong, they shouldn't have to hide anything. He'll be shocked by the escape, noting that the Santa Fe jail is really hard to break out, and as he ponders what he's been told, he comes to the conclusion that something like that sounds like the work of Longshot Gilbert. Now, if you'll go back in our story, Longshot Gilbert was reported to have been killed by our Black Widow before she bolted for Santa Fe. 
Marshall Ed will acknowledge that, but he'll also note that we can't really be sure he's dead now, can we? He'll also add that it sounds like something Gilbert would do. If they want to discuss the Mexican army, Ed will weigh in, noting that he'd heard the Mexican army had been encroaching farther and farther north, but he's genuinely surprised that they were that far into Texas without the CSA taking action. He states that this is the sort of thing to keep an eye on, and he will pass the information along to the Texas Rangers. Moving on to the discussion of last night's actions, Ed reports that sometime last night he went through a batch of old wanted posters he had for bounties that had never been claimed and noted that he recognized one of the dead attackers as being a part of the Colson Corporation. The group can make their knowledge area knowledge checks with a DC of 10 for most unless they just happen to be from around the area or are a bounty hunter or have some sort of profession that would have them regularly in the area. In that case, make it a six. Here's what they find out with a successful check. The Colson Corporation is a group operating out of western Kansas, eastern Colorado, and northern Oklahoma. There are rumors they're funded by businessmen in all three states. They steal, they burn, and break, and kill. Marshall Ed can tell them all of that if they don't make their roles, and he'll add this. Their leader, Francis Colson, has enough bounties on him that a man could retire if they could catch him. If, by the way, if the group is interested in just how much the bounties would be worth, make it somewhere around $30,000. Not that they're ever going to get close enough to cash in, in theory. Marshall Ed has his own thoughts about the Colson Corporation. He had a deal a couple of months back with what he calls a snot Lowe's little punk, and that kid had pulled a gun on the mayor. The mayor did the proverbial pimp slap to the punk, then drug him to the jail. Marshall Ed took the punk's guns, tossed him into a cell overnight, then fined him $5 in the morning and released him. It was a couple of weeks later that he found out the little punk happened to be the nephew of Francis Colson. He admits he was expecting some sort of payback, but something like what happened last night is way beyond any sort of payback he could have expected. He then reports that the day the group left Triumph for Santa Fe, he sent word to Dodge City to an old friend of his, Deputy Sheriff Roscoe Clint, asking him to come down to discuss the various weirdness that's been going on recently. Clint's reply would that he be in Triumph by later tonight or tomorrow. Marshall Ed explains that Clint should be able to shed a bit more light on some of the mystery that they're dealing with and should be able to help them figure out what their next move should be. Insofar as today, Ed makes it clear that his one and only goal is to hunker down and try to stay alive until Clint arrives. Now, Marshall Ed won't ask the group for help, but as a GM, I'd play it like he's hinting at it. The appearance of the jail should make it clear he's planning on a siege at some point, so he's probably not going to be in any hurry to leave the jail. So if the group offers to help, he'll gladly accept it and he'll deputize them for the next 24 hours to keep an eye on Triumph while he stays as hidden as possible. The group's only job is to maintain the peace in town, which shouldn't be too hard since most of the things that disturb the peace have been coming from outside of town recently. The group won't have badges, but Ed will get word to the mayor and the mayor will get word to the rest of the town, so the players will have the authority and it will be recognized by the citizenry of the town. Now, the group, of course, doesn't have to offer, nor do they have to take this onto themselves. If that's the case, they can go on with their day, doing whatever they want to do. If something like that happens, 
Pop in a group of five or six bank robbers using the gunslinger template on page 88 of the player's guide. That should be enough to get them out and active. But for the purposes of this design, let's work from the assumption that the group offers to help out. That means they need to patrol Triumph during the day and through the evening. How that gets handled is up to the group. Do they split into smaller groups and patrol certain areas of town? Do they patrol as a group and do a circuit of town? Or is there some other idea they want to use? That's what I mean by leaving this up to the group to decide. And don't rush them on this. Give them the time they need to figure out exactly what they want to do to handle this. If you want, you can even hint that this decision is a very important one. For the record, it's not, at least not immediately. The group has the entire day to patrol the town. They can also, if they choose or if you want to suggest it, patrol out around the mines to make sure nothing bad is happening there. Other than some comments and or interactions with the townspeople, nothing should happen during the day. If you want to inject some tension into this part of the session, you can have some riders come into town and look menacing or disturbing. However, in the end, those shouldn't go anywhere. The excitement of this deal is coming up in a few. Night falls and there's still nothing of note to report. As the night gets later, the players should be getting a feeling that all the concern was for nothing and they might just start relaxing a bit. Around 10 p.m., you'll want to make sure you know where the players are in town. Don't make a big deal out of it and it would actually probably be a good idea to ask them throughout the day what they're doing and where they are. That way, when we drop what's coming on them, you're not asking a new or unusual question. After all, when you ask a new or different question to a player during this type of session, their mindset usually changes to what's happening next. And yes, that's metagaming, but it's really kind of hard to stop. So around 10 p.m., as the nightlife of Triumph is fully underway, any player in the streets will notice something coming from the east. It appears that a fire is rolling towards the town. Now, unless they're very close to the jail. The group will get there about the same time that the fire does, and it becomes clear that rolling fire is a line of a dozen men on horseback holding torches. When the group calls out to them, none of the riders respond. Instead, a 13th man walks out from behind the line. He's tall, thin, and very gray. His long gray duster is obviously hiding weapons, but he's holding his hands plainly empty out in front of him as he faces the jail. He holds up his right hand slowly in the universal signal to hold, and it's apparent he's giving that order to his group. He vaguely acknowledges the PCs, regardless of what they say to him. What he says is directed towards the jail. Ed Stewart, you blue-bellied bastard. I've waited five years to get even with you. I see you've conned some poor suckers to take your punishment. We'll deal with them if we need to, but I'd prefer you and I settle this like men. You can either come out here and face me like a man, or you can hide in there and die like the coward you are. Now, feel free to adjust the verbiage on that however you'd like. That's how I read it, and I wrote it for myself. Change it up to be more the way you want to be. Obviously, that's your choice. Now, when I actually ran this, I gave him a bit more of a southern drawl, but you can use whatever accent you want, including no accent, if that's more your style. Regardless of how you play him, a beat after he finishes his speech, a shot rings out from the jail, drills him in the shoulder. He'll drop to a knee, and his men will throw their torches at the jail. Now, because of that action, I would allow each player to take one action for free. 
For me, that comes because the bad guys have focused on throwing torches for that moment, and they're they're not paying attention to the group. However, once they've done that, it's time to draw cards and run the combat. If the group's having issues with the bad guys, from time to time have a townsperson or two jump in to help. However, unless it's the mayor or the bouncer from the entertainment house, you use the cowpoke template from page 84. If things really get bad, this would be a good time to have Deputy Sheriff Clint and his two associates roll into town. Use the sheriff template you used for Marshall Ed, and since they're coming in from behind the attacking bad guys, they will get the drop on a few of them before they have to split their attention. Hopefully, your group survives this. Again, as I've said before, we're going to go with the assumption that they do. The townspeople get on putting the fire out at the jail. Fortunately, the jail is isolated enough that it won't spread to other buildings. But Marshall Ed was locked up in there. So what happens to him? Kind of depends on how long the fight took, because townspeople can't get too close to the jail with bullets flying. Plus, Ed would have been shooting some during that fight as well. If the fight goes no more than three rounds, Ed's alive. However, he's going to be burned pretty bad and coughing from the smoke he inhaled. The doctor can treat him, but it's obvious he's going to be laid up for a bit. If the fight goes more than three rounds, Ed's dead. Now, you can choose if you like to have a panic room in the floor of the jail that Ed hides in, which would keep him unburned and alive regardless of how long the fight lasts. Just decide prior to the fight how many rounds you want Ed to keep shooting, then have him drop just when you want him to be into the panic room. You should probably also keep noting the progress of the fire and point out how high the flames are getting and how much it seems to be spreading around the building. In the aftermath, any dead townspeople are taken into the stables to be laid out and prepared for burial. Any dead bad guys are kind of stacked up on the south side of the stables to be identified. Now, somebody has to take charge of organizing everything. If Marshal Ed is alive, he'll be the one to do it. If not, the mayor will take charge and make sure everything's going as it should be. Before we continue, give each of your players a white chip. Needless to say, they deserve it. And I think this is a good time to give each player a point of grit. To stand up to a crowd like that and survive, they've earned it as well. Moving forward in this scenario, I'm going from the perspective that Marshall Ed survived. If he didn't, then the mayor provides the information that Marshall Ed would, unless otherwise noted. Once bodies are moved and the fire is put out, Marshall Ed takes over the restaurant as a temporary office since his is smoldering embers at the moment. He needs to think through what actually just happened. If Deputy Clint and his guys didn't come in to help in the fight, they're going to show up right about now, and they'll note they'd have been there sooner, but they ran into about a half a dozen men with torches headed this way, and they dealt with them. All right, I'm going to swerve off the path for a minute here to give the descriptions of the deputy and his men. Clint himself looks like he was chiseled from a block of granite, six foot six, 285, solid rock muscle. He's also armed to the teeth, though you can decide what he's carrying. His hat covers a bald head, and he wears a close-cropped beard of brown. His two associates are about as big as he is. Chester Long is African-American, and Angelo Bronte is of Asian and Italian heritage. And hey, for the record, you can change these characters up however you want, make them whoever you want, make them big, make them small, make them whatever. I'm doing it for you the way I did it for me. Continuing then. All three men are friendly when they interact with people, but they walk and handle themselves like they own the space they're in. So with that, let's get back to laying out the aftermath. 
Once Ed gets a chance to sit down and think, he'll talk about the five years ago comment as well as the blue belly comment. He notes that he was in the Union Army, but it was longer than five years ago, and he never saw combat because he was shot in the butt by someone in his own platoon during training exercises. He had been conscripted, but the wound was severe enough that he was discharged from the Union Army. So with that, he has no idea what that deal was. Clint, having taken a look at the baddies before meeting up with the group, has a few thoughts of his own. He says he's not 100% sure what the deal was, but he does know that the old guy is Connor Colson. He's the older brother of Francis Colson. He also notes that Connor has a bit of a drinking problem combined with a nasty temper. Noting all of that, he flat out states that it probably wouldn't have taken much to set him off. Now, the next part of this depends directly on whether Marshall Ed survived or not. If he did, Clint will suggest that due to the fact that Francis Colson will most likely send men to see why his brother didn't come back, the players will need to have their deputizations extended if they were deputized in the first place. If they weren't, he strongly suggests that they sign up and he offers a dollar a day from the county as pay. If Ed died, Clint will point out to the mayor that he needs a temporary marshal immediately. The mayor will pick one of the players to take the job, and which one he chooses is up to you. By this point, you know who'd be best for the job, so go with them. Clint will also recommend that the rest of the group be deputized or continue to be deputized with the dollar a day. Whoever gets the temporary marshal gig will get 10 bucks a week and 250 per arrest for the duration of their time. The understanding is that the mayor will be looking for a replacement immediately, and unless the player really wants the gig, he'll try to have someone in place in a week. Once this has been settled, Deputy Clint makes it clear he wants to get out in front of what's going on as soon as possible, and he orders one of his associates to head to the town of Shawton and grab the help he's got waiting there. For the record, Shawton is about a day and a half north of Triumph, and if he pushes it, he can do it in a day. With all of that taken care of, Clint wants to know why he was asked to come to town in the first place. If Marshall Ed's alive, he helps the group present everything that's happened to this point. If not, the group is responsible for doing it all themselves. Clint has several thoughts on the things that have happened. On the most recent deal, he believes the Colson Corporation won't stop until Marshall Ed and the group are dead or Triumph has been burned to the ground. His reasoning is that at this point, Francis Colson will probably be mad enough to drive to that result. On the Longshot Gilbert information, he's got a shocker. Longshot Gilbert isn't dead, and he's 99% sure of that. He notes that Gilbert's been in jail in Cochise County, Arizona for at least the past three weeks and isn't due to get out for at least another month. However, he also notes that he wouldn't put it past Sheriff John Behan to allow Gilbert to either run his business from his jail cell or allow him privileges to get out for periods of time. Clint has a lot of not-so-nice things to say about Behan, and I'll leave those colorful thoughts for you to fill in, since I don't know how colorful you want your language to be. He also adds that he's definitely sure Gilbert wouldn't have come back to Kansas even if he got out of jail because Clint has made it clear in the past that he'll kill Gilbert if he ever sees him again. Gilbert also wouldn't go to Colorado because the U.S. Marshals also want him dead. So in his opinion, if Gilbert got out or when he gets out, he'll go somewhere in the CSA. However, he wants to check up on things, so he states that when the rest of his men get here, he'll send two to Tombstone to find out what's going on. By this point, it's very late at night, and everyone there agrees that the best idea is to try to get some sleep and begin the cleanup and rebuilding in the morning. 
When morning arrives, Clint and his guy help whomever is working on rebuilding the jail, which will be just about every able-bodied person in town. The mayor even allows some of his miners to help out with assurances that they'll get their regular wages for the day. The idea is that the group will handle peacekeeping in town again. A couple of days later, all of Clint's men are in town, and he sends one of his associates with one of the new arrivals to Tombstone, leaving Clint, an associate, and five additional men. This is the same day the jail is complete, bigger and better than ever. For several more days, things seem to be quiet, but Clint and his men remain. His argument is that trouble's coming any day now. Day 7, post-attack, is when the trouble arrives. It'll be late at night, and anyone keeping watch will need a cognition roll of 15 or better to notice people trying to sneak up into town in the dark. This time, there's 20 of them. As soon as anyone notices them and makes noise, the fight begins. Now, I'm being vague about where they are and how things are set up because at this point, I want you to lay this out. Where do the men come in? Where do they set up? Where do the defenders set up? What happens? That's up to you. Use the sheriff template for Clint, the gunslinger template for his associate, and the cowpoke template for the five of the guys. Also, any townsperson you can reasonably believe would be involved can be involved. Use the cowpoke template for them as well. Otherwise, run the combat and see how it goes, and remember to use the gunslinger template for the bad guys. This should be interesting. And we'll leave our campaign build at this point and pick up with the aftermath next week. Before we get the campaign recap going, I need to take a moment and tell you what grid is for, especially since I just gave your group a point, or you did anyway. Grit works like this. Anytime a player has to make a guts check, which we haven't done yet in this game, they get to add a point to their roll for every point of grit they have. I'll get more into grit when we need to use it for the first time, but I figured I'd better define it now so that we don't use it in the wrong way. Okay, so with that business out of the way, let's get into the campaign recap. Now, before I start, I need to point out that my group didn't follow what I laid out. They chose to do things very different and therefore took their game in a different direction. So in presenting what happened, I'm also providing you with an alternate way to set up your own campaign. So feel free to use what I've run in your game if you so choose. All right, so let's rewind to the beginning of our campaign creation, which occurs after the five-man assault on the jail, which the group came through without a scratch. Marshall Ed was definitely angry and definitely shaken. The group picked up on this and asked if they could help in some way, and Ed deputized them to keep an eye on the town while he plotted their next move. Several members of the group were hesitant to wear a badge, so Ed told them they didn't need them. This made it easier for all the group to agree. Oh, and I have to note that because he has a job that gets him to the game late each session, Jim wasn't there when we started, so I was running his character. The group split into smaller groups and agreed to do a circular patrol of triumph. They mingled with the townspeople who wanted to talk and had positive conversations with all of them. At some point, Scott came up with the idea of finding a high spot to use to check out as much land as possible to look for incoming bad guys. He borrowed a spyglass from Marshall Ed and used it from that spot. For the record, that high spot was the roof of the general store, as I decided it would be the tallest building in town. As we sorted out in the creation part of this show, the day and evening were otherwise uneventful, and the group had decided to stop in the tavern for a drink before deciding to take one more lap around town and call it a night. 
As they exited the tavern, I had them make cognition rolls to see the incoming fire. They all saw it, and Scott decided to hoof it to the stables, grab a batch of dynamite, and get into position to toss it if he could. He was also able to call out to the rest of the group how many men there were and how close they were getting. While he was doing that, the rest of the group pulled a couple of wagons out of the stables and used them to block the road into triumph. The group stopped just short of the wagons, and Connor Colson approached the wagons but turned to face the jail. I gave the speech just as I presented it before, and I did it word for word. However, instead of hitting Colson in the shoulder, I had actually rolled a d20 to determine hit location, and Marshall Ed's rifle shot hit Colson in the head. With the damage I rolled, because I figured I'd better with a headshot, I realized he'd gotten his brains blown out with a single shot. Needless to say, that changed the course of this combat. Gabe quickly realized he had a chance to talk this out and used his abilities to try to convince as many of the potential attackers to leave. There were 20 of them in this case, and 15 of them decided to leave. They dropped their torches, turned tail, and sprinted out of there. With the entire group now trying to persuade, the other five decided that discretion was the better part of valor and dropped their torches and sprinted off as well. As in the creative part of this show, Deputy Clint and his two men showed up right about this point and noted they'd run into a whole lot of guys running hell-bent for leather in multiple directions. The conversation went, for the most part, just how I described it before. However, Scott had an idea. He decided he wanted to use his power to check the dead body to see if he could figure out why the attack took place. So, as I usually do when Scott uses this power, I pulled him into another room and explained what he got. He saw the exact same vision he saw the last time he tried this. A man in a Union Army uniform shooting randomly at people. When confronted by the person he's seeing this through, the man points a gun at him and threatens to kill him if he pushes the issue. The one difference this time is the man doing the shooting is Marshal Ed. That makes the discussion about Ed's military service even more weird and got the group discussing how two people could have had the same vision but with different people in the main role. However, they decided to table that discussion for the moment as they had bigger fish to fry. The group decided that they could probably track the men who rode off and follow them back to Francis Colson. Their reasoning was that if they could get to Colson, they could maybe prevent another attack against them. They weren't sure whether they'd attack, be attacked, or negotiate, but they decided this was the way to go. Clint informed them that he saw men heading in a bunch of different directions, but told them it was their call if it was what they wanted to do. So I had the players make cognition tracking rolls, and I set the target at 10, though they didn't know that. They followed the trail east for a while, and I had them make additional rolls over time. At one point, one of them rolled so well that I informed them that there was a set of tracks going due east, while two other sets of tracks wove in and out in a poor attempt to conceal the ride. As the sun rose, the group ran into another problem. By this point, they'd been up and moving for well, about 24 hours. So keeping that in mind, I had them make vigor checks with a starting target of six. And again, they didn't know that. Needless to say, two of them failed this initial roll and basically passed out in the saddle from fatigue. The other three grabbed the reins of those horses and led them as they continued to follow the trail. A bit later, after another cognition tracking roll, I had them roll the vigor checks again. This time they lost two more, basically because the target was now ten. That left Max, who watched over the other four as they slept for about an hour. I agreed they could get in the saddle and search a bit more, though I warned them that pushing too much further would not be good for them. Fortunately for them, 
Fortunately for them, they came up on a rise a bit later, and approaching it carefully, they peered over the edge and noticed a rather large farmstead about a half a mile or so away, positioned in the bottom of a bowl formed by rises all around it. They realized the tracks led to that farmstead, and they backed away to find a hidey hole to take a nap in. After getting a few hours of sleep, they approached the gate to the compound and proposed to meet with Mr. Coulson. Gabe and Scott offered to leave their weapons behind in order to gain entrance, and the two of them were escorted to the main house, which is where they were told Mr. Coulson was. Entering the house, I set it up as looking like the home of a rich southern plantation owner. That's also how I played Francis Coulson, very much a southern gentleman. In fact, when Gabe and Scott were led into his office, he offered them a drink. He even poured three glasses and let the boys choose what glasses they wanted. They accepted the drinks and they got down to brass tacks. They discussed the reasons for Coulson's brother bringing him into a tech triumph, and Francis tried to play it off like it really wasn't a big deal, initially. However, as the discussion moved on, Francis informed the group that Marshall Ed isn't the man he presents himself as. Francis pointed out that Ed has worked multiple times over the past several years in multiple towns, and he hasn't stayed very long, just long enough to wear out his welcome before he heads on to the next town to do his thing. Also, at each stop Ed's been on, he's had run-ins with Colson Corporation members, and Francis hints that Ed hasn't been treating them well or treating them fairly. However, through discussion, Scott and Gabe indicated that Triumph seems to be a good fit for Ed, and they don't anticipate his leaving anytime soon. With that in mind, they make an offer to Francis. If he calls off any further attacks on Triumph or Marshall Ed, they will personally guarantee Ed does not leave Triumph. Francis agrees to this and is so impressed with their candor, he offers them a piece of information. He knows they're looking for the widow and he knows where she is. El Paso, Texas. He also states he might be interested in doing business with them in the future and assures them it'll be above board. Scott and Gabe agree to consider the offer. They pay their respects and they leave. They get their weapons back and the group as a whole headed back to Triumph. I didn't give them any issues on the way back, so we fast-forwarded to their return to Triumph. They met with Marshal Ed and Deputy Clint in the jail and discussed the deal they'd made. Both men seemed a bit suspicious of the deal, but Ed agreed to it primarily because it would take pressure off the town of Triumph. As a part of the conversation, they brought up the information about the widow being in El Paso. Deputy Clint pointed out the tip might be a trick or trap, but he and Ed both agree, as does the group, that if there's even a chance the widow might be there, they owe it to themselves to head there and check it out. So they spent the rest of the day and evening gathering gear and getting ready to head out. They decided that they wanted to load up a wagon since they'd be out for quite some time. And at first light, they left. Again, I decided I didn't want to have anything happen to him in transit, so we skipped ahead to them about a mile outside of El Paso. I noted that it was very apparent that the city of El Paso was smoking. The players asked if they could see fire, and I had them make cognition rolls with a target of 10. They figured out that they couldn't see fire, but that didn't mean parts of the city weren't on fire. So keeping that in mind, they decided to cautiously approach the city. About 500 yards or so out, they used the spyglass they'd gotten from Mayor Ed, since they forgot to give it back to him and I forgot to ask for it, and they noticed a bunch of Mexican soldiers moving through town checking things out. Realizing this was bigger than they'd thought, they decided to skirt around to the south of the city, keeping the El Paso River to their backs, and continue to figure out what was going on. 
By the time they were done looking, they'd noticed at least 30 Mexican soldiers, but I made it clear they didn't have an accurate count. They found a hidey hole, waited for him to pull out of town, then went in to see if they could find a sign of the widow. I made it clear to them that anything made of wood was burnt completely out. Stonework and adobe were the only things left somewhat intact. They figured out what the nicest place in the city would have been, since that's the widow's M.O., and checked there. They didn't find her, but they found the body of their other friend from Santa Fe. He was burned and stabbed to death. Gabe thought to look for a safe, and he found one. While they were anticipating how to crack it, Scott used his ability to get the combination out of the dead body. Opening it, it was cleared with the exception of a letter from the widow. Basically, it said she knew the Mexicans were coming, so she was taking her money and running. And it was dated one day prior. By this point, Jim had arrived at the game, and he offered the opinion that this fit completely with what they knew about her, in that she's got a habit of leaving others to hold the bag for her. Aniston and Gabe wondered about the fort that's near El Paso. After all, they argued if the Mexican army invaded El Paso, why didn't the Confederate army come to its rescue? So they decided to head that way and see what they could see. Again, I didn't have them run into anything headed to the fort because I wanted the tension from the city itself to hang over them. When they were several hundred yards out, they again used the spyglass to check the forts. The gates were wide open and they noticed two walking dead keeping guard. Check your marshal's guide, you'll find it. Now, I didn't initially call them that. I just showed them the picture of the Walking Dead from the marshal's handbook and told them the guards looked like that. Next, I pointed out that there were a couple of more in the guard towers and another half dozen they could see marching in formation inside the fort. When Aniston kept suggesting he wanted to see more about them, the rest of the group decided it was time to just nope. Nope right on out. They also decided that based on the fort being like this, there was probably no way the widow went this way. They also noted that there's no way she went south, since she's worth a small fortune down there. She also couldn't have gone north, as she most likely would have passed them. That meant she had to head west. So they did as well. Thinking it through, the largest city she would run in going due west next would be Tombstone, so they headed that way. During the trip, they had to go through New Mexico, and I have to admit I messed something up. I had them run into a platoon of soldiers, but forgetting that New Mexico was CSA territory, I presented them as Union soldiers. Insofar as the story, it really doesn't make a difference because all they did was report the fort and issue there, and they noticed a couple of soldiers flying in quote-unquote flying backpacks, as I put it. So, needless to say, the group agreed to be blind, deaf, and dumb about that and traveled a bit further before they stopped for the night. After that encounter, we fast-forwarded to Tombstone. They entered town, and I made it a point to have them hear someone yelling from inside a saloon that Holiday had ripped them off. Gabe started salivating at that, but Jim and the others convinced him to stay on mission, which at this point was to meet with the town marshal to see if the widow had been there. Marshal White met with them, and he noted that the widow and her group had been there a couple of days prior. They spent a night, and the widow lost about $20,000 gambling with Holiday. She and her group, which now consisted of hired cowboys, left a day and a half ago, headed north. Now, by cowboy, I don't mean the lowercase cowboy. I mean the cowboys like you saw in the movies Tombstone and Wyatt Earp. By the way, Tombstone was my favorite. Val Kilmer is Doc Holliday, priceless. So the group did some discussing and figured she had to be headed for Tucson and figured if they could catch a train, they could probably beat her there since a train would move much faster. They made their way to the depot and inquired about a train. 
They were told the train would be in in about an hour and it would take about 45 minutes to get things turned around to head back north. Since they now had time, Gabe went to gamble with Holiday. They chatted and played Pharaoh and Gabe ultimately lost 20 bucks. Realizing his time was probably getting close, he headed to the station. They had tickets for all five men, plus their wagon and all the horses. Climbed on the train and pulled out of the station, and that's where we wrapped our game for the night. So, looking at the campaign debriefing, we went in a way different direction than I had anticipated in the building section. Look, to me, that's okay. In the back of my mind, I always kind of knew the group would probably come up with a way to deal with what I was throwing out at them that I hadn't thought of. Now, I also have to admit that everything after the fight in front of the jail was done off the cuff. But unlike the last time I did that, I had an idea in the back of my mind all along that I wanted to follow. And when I ran out of stuff, we were at a logical stopping point. Of course, now that means I got to figure out what happens next. And we're going to see next week that the campaign we're building is going to head in a much different direction than the one I'm running at present. Don't sweat it, though. At some point, we're going to get the two back in line on the same tracks. Also, with what we've covered today, our campaign creation and my group's progress in the game are at the exact same point. But we game again tomorrow night, so next week we'll see where things go. The week after that, the creation part of the show will get ahead of the group again, and that's going to be interesting as we move forward. If you've got any questions about what we've laid out over the course of this show, or you'd like to share your own experiences playing what we've built, hit me up on socials or email me. I'll read it on the air, and of course, you'll get your props. I'd also like to encourage you to listen to our other podcast, Role Playing History. This week, I get to do a redo of an episode I'd <laughs> rather forget about, and we'll discuss gaming terminology. Check out Role Playing History wherever you find your podcasts. The music we use on this show comes from pixabay.com. Check them out for royalty-free and license-free music for your next project. All Deadlands classic materials I reference in this show are trademarked and copyrighted by Pinnacle Entertainment Group, and we use them here solely for entertainment purposes. Bad GM's Campaign Build-Along is a production of Bad GM Productions. Follow us on Facebook, Bad GM Productions, Twitter, at Bad GMP, YouTube, Bad GM Productions. We've got a Twitch channel, Bad GM, and you can email us at badgmproductions at gmail.com. Next week, we pick up where we left off this week and see what your group is going to do after being swamped with guys who want to see them dead. Should be interesting. That's coming up next week, and I'm looking very forward to seeing you there. Until then, I'm Wayne Davis, the bad GM, saying so long for just a while.